You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature, and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I guess we've, I've been following you for years now, actually. And um, yeah, so it's really cool that we get to talk today about DNM and ask all the burning questions and kind of just really get a clear picture of what it is. Um, totally. Yeah. So I know that you've been in the health and wellness space for many years and started off as a chiropractor. And then you and your partner started the awareness school, I guess, which is like your interest in consciousness, mindfulness, and kind of everything that the mind is all about, which I think is really cool. Um, and then I wasn't sure though, where, where did GNM come in for you guys, for you specifically? Yeah. So we, I was in chiropractic, so I went to chiropractic school starting in 2008, and just that was my whole life for a very long time, and it wasn't until 2017 that I stumbled across GNM, and Steve and I had already started getting into the awareness work of like, you know, I saw working as a chiropractor, giving people like lifestyle prescriptions of like, eat this let's clean up your diet. Let's clean out these products. Like I'd give, you know, seminars on sugar and healthy skincare and how to just detox your life and uh, exercise and take care of your spine and just all of the external healthy living things, all the boxes to check to be healthy. And, you know, I did that full time was my whole entire life for a very long time, you know, but even within that realm, I just, I would see clients, you know, when you, I guess in, are in practice for several years, you just start seeing patterns in people and it's like, Oh, you know, you're coming to the workshops, you're, you've changed your, there's still stuff going on with you that we're not getting to from the changing the external things. And so I started getting more interested in the internal for myself primarily. And then also that kind of bled over into my work with people. And so we started doing the awareness work, really just diving into your own personal perception. Why do I think and feel and act the way that I do? And then there was something in me that I just knew that there was a connection to that realm and to specifically health, but I didn't know what it was yet. And I started kind of looking into psychosomatics and just like the mind body connection, but it was, I was listening to a podcast about magnesium supplementation and uh, Dr. Carolyn Dean, who was giving the, doing the podcast just mentioned Germany medicine when she was asked about cancer. And I was like, I have never heard of this. What is this? And then I looked it up and immediately there was just a knowing of like, oh, this is enormous. This is huge. This is, you know, I, I read about Dr. Hammer's story. I saw, you know, the connections of the psyche, the brain, the organ, the embryology. And I was like, this is, this is the missing piece. This is, you know, why the people who I thought did all of the healthiest things and had the healthiest lifestyle, you know, when they would have a diagnosis or cancer or have a heart attack out of nowhere, this is why this makes sense. You know, because when I thought that healthy living and healthy lifestyle, eating, nutrition, sleep, exercise, when I thought that that was everything, 
those people getting sick made no sense to me. And it was uncomfortable to, to face that reality. But now it's like, oh, this is the missing piece. This is how that all makes sense. Um, or also why the people who don't eat healthy and don't exercise and don't care and have never been to a chiropractor can live to 102 and kind of be pretty much fine with no disease. This is why that makes sense. It has to do with the psyche, the brain, the organ, and this biological map. Um, and so that's how it's that's how it came to me. And then it just made sense that okay, so if the psyche, so um, how I perceive my reality, if that can influence how my body adapts. I can change the way I perceive my reality. And if I can change that, I can uh, decrease the number of times my body adapts to something. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about many examples of how that works like in practice. So for example, I used to think that diet was what caused acne. I was like, oh, it's bad food. It's uh, dairy, it's inflammatory foods, it's bad oils. And the more I believed that, the more I'd break out when I'd eat at a restaurant or eat anything that wasn't good. And as soon as I realized that connection and I stopped feeling soiled and gross every time I ate at Chipotle or something, um, I would not have acne anymore. And it's like, oh, so if I have the power to alter my perception, to believe that this food is bad for me and literally make it bad for me, give me the result of the acne breakout simply because I felt gross when I ate it because I had this idea about bad oils. That was how I saw, ooh, there's a lot of room here to improve our experiences. It's not that we can prevent every adaptation that ever is going to happen. That's kind of the nature of it is that it's unexpected a lot of the times is that it caught me off guard. I wasn't prepared for it, but there are things that I can do to become more aware when it happens. Um, when, when I go through something to be able to understand it has brought me such peace and such freedom and such just great understanding of how my biology functions. Mm, I definitely resonate with that because when I was studying naturopathy, it really just didn't make sense when we talked about like the immune system and I was like, yeah, that there's a lot of holes in this and it doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially when there's like anecdotal evidence for, you know, like a whole family getting sick, but one person doesn't or like, you know, you experience something and you, and then your neighbor experiences it. And then like, you know, so there's, there are, there are a lot of things that just, you can't really explain, but then GNM came along and I was like, Oh, that does make sense because it's they've experienced the same thing or that person didn't experience or that person just didn't care about that thing, but the other people did. I am. Um, I've got to admit I'm a rookie when it comes to GNM, but like everything you you've just explained, Melissa is it really ties in with, I mean, a lot of the emotional work that I've seen from like Joe Dispenza and, um, and people in that realm and like nocebo effects and that kind of thing where, you know, you've got this emotional component or this, like like the power of the mind that you can tell your body, oh, this is great or this is wrong and you'll feel the effects of that even if it's like absolutely not doing anything to you. So, yeah, it um, mm -hmm. it's cool because I feel like GNM kind of just brings that in with more structure. Yeah, so just for people who don't know what GNM is or they just haven't really got a complete hold on it, just quickly, <laughs> what is it <laughs> and how does it work? 
Totally. So it's, this is German new medicine. It's also called the Germanic healing knowledge. And it was the discovery of Dr. Reich Geert Hammer. And his experience was that his son in a very dramatic situation, there's actually a documentary on Netflix. If you guys haven't seen it yet, it's called the King who never was that goes through the story of the crown prince of Italy who shot this gun and it ended up, you know, hitting Dr. Hammer's son. Um, and it was this crazy thing and he had his leg amputated and they tried to keep him alive and he ended up dying. Um, and so he was 17 years old and Dr. Hammer in the wake of that developed testicular cancer. And, you know, his deep conviction was that there was a, a link between the loss of his son and the testicular cancer. He's like that just, you know, there was no cancer in his family. And so when he had the chance, he started studying, um, cancer patients. He was the head of an oncology unit and he started to see pattern. So every man that he spoke to that had testicular cancer had a similar theme of experience. They've lost someone, you know, they had a breakup or they lost a loved one. Someone died. Um, there was a loss. Everyone who had a breast cancer, uh, a glandular breast cancer had a, a intense worry for a loved one. Everyone with a ductal breast cancer had a separation conflict. Everyone with a colon cancer had an ugly indigestible situation that they were dealing with. And and so we started to see that this cancer doesn't seem to be random. It doesn't seem to be the body making a mistake, but there seems to be meaning, biological meaning inside of the, the changes that the body made. And so, you know, if you think about it, it really does make sense. So if an organism loses their offspring and the testicles now are swollen up and we've got, you know, a tumor in the testicle, it's like, is this just the body doing the wrong thing? Is the body making a mistake? Or is the body enhancing the testicles ability to reproduce what was lost? Or with the breast gland, if the mother is very worried for her child, for her offspring, um, it's like, oh, it makes sense that the body, if the biology has the capacity to grow additional cells in the breast gland to produce more milk, more nourishment for the offspring, that makes sense. In the colon, if the body, if you can't digest something, that your colon would hear you and give you extra tissue in order to better digest, to break down or to absorb the thing that can't be digested. So what emerged was this whole map of the meaningful adaptations of the body rather than the body's making a mistake. The body is, you know, killing itself. The body is shutting down, you know, organs for no reason. It's no, the body is experiencing. So the psyche perceives something, something happens in my world and my psyche automatically before it's not even about conscious thought. It's not about like what I'm thinking about the situation. It's before you even think your body reacts, you know, your body, they, they've done studies that have shown that like the brain makes a decision like six seconds before you're even aware the decision has been made, you know, so your psyche works very fast and it has to, if you think about our ancient ancestors and we think about adapting to a situation, your psyche is constantly perceiving potential threats in your environment. And, you know, if you're, you know, conscious mind is distracted in a conversation, your body can sense if there's like an animal, if there's something, a predator approaching, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a, it, a lot of our ancestors to survive the fact that we've been able to adapt so swiftly to shocking circumstances. And so he saw these experiences happening in people's life, a loss, a separation, a fear, um, 
some type of, you know, situation they're angry about. So they're having an experience and then their tissues, their biology is adapting there. There's more cells here or there's less loss of cells there. He's seeing something happen on the organ. And so he thought to look in the brain. He's like, you know, there has to be a mediator, a center where all of this information is being conveyed and relayed to, and that's the brain. And so Hummer started looking at CT brain scans and saw that there was a pattern. There were circles formations in specific areas in the brain that correlated to the specific organ. So every time a man had a certain type of, you know, testicular tumor, he'd always see a circle in the brain at a particular location. And that person always had a similar type of experience in their life, psyche, brain, organ. And then he'd look at the breasts. And so the woman would have a particular life experience. There would be a circle in a particular area of the brain. And there'd be a change on a particular organ level every single time. And so Dr. Hammer was very meticulous about this system. And he didn't want there to be guesses or theories or, you know, some of the time it's like that. Some of the time, if he didn't see it every single time, it didn't get written into his map. And so he found this whole, he mapped out every tissue layer. So... Our bodies are when we're when our parents made us and those two um, cells came together, the tissue starts to differentiate. And so it differentiates and it forms three different layers, the endoderm, the mesoderm and the ectoderm. And those tissues go on to form and morph into all of this complicated body that we now have. And all of those areas are controlled from specific areas of the brain. And he mapped that out to the detail to each and every tissue type in the body. And that's the thing is there's nothing in the body that is there for no reason. (laughs) Everything in the body has a purpose and has a meaning and it has the capacity to go into an adaptation mode, which means it can grow bigger or it can get smaller depending on what's needed for the situation. So a gland will get bigger so it can produce more juices. A duct uh, will get wider so that more juices can flow through it. It's like, okay, that makes sense. That's what the body has the capacity to do, to grow things, to erode things in order for us to survive in a split second. And these adaptations are very helpful for short-term situations. (laughs) So when we have a conflict, think about an animal. An animal, oh no, there's there's a squirrel and there's the bobcat. <laughs> and is the squirrel going to get away? Is it going to play dead? Is it going to, you know, or is it going to get eaten? And this whole situation is going to take, you know, less than three minutes. And then either the squirrel's dead or it got away, you know, and that's that. And then the conflict is over. You know, the, the tissue can go back to normal once the conflict is resolved. But when, when we have a conflict that goes on and on and on and on, that's where we start seeing chronic disease or we start seeing, you know, the body developing things that it's like, oh my goodness. Because sometimes people will hear about GNM and they'll be like, well, people die from this. How can cancer be good if people die from it? The problem is, is when we live in the conflict and we reactivate the conflict perpetually rather than living like an animal and resolving something and moving on. You know, if we lived more like our animal, uh, you know, brethren, we would be a lot healthier. You know, and animals in the wild are a lot healthier. You know, animals in captivity, which is what most humans are, animals in captivity, you know, that we have a lot of conflicts that go on for a really long time that create kind of uh, chronic illness over time. Um, but the body is doing the right thing. That's kind of the big picture to take away from this is that the body is doing something intentional and it's an adaptation 
to a specific event in your life. And so the, the good news for those listening, it's like, okay, well, how can I use this? Well, if you've got a chronic issue, when you trace it back and you figure out what is the root of this? So with the acne, that was like one of my big revelations. One of the first things that just like made so much sense to me. So acne, it's not diet. It's not a lack of probiotics. It's not bacteria on your skin. It's feeling attacked or feeling soiled. So that's like feeling dirtied, feeling disfigured, feeling gross, feeling ugly. Um, And so it's like, whoa, that makes so much sense. When I was a teenager, I was like, oh, do you like me? Do you think I'm pretty enough? You know, I felt and I would feel, you know, judged or I felt ugly and my body would adapt to it. And so by seeing that and by paying attention to that connection, I changed my perception and I stopped judging myself, judging my skin. Do you ever have like a breakout and be like, oh no, it looks so bad. It's so, I look so gross. And then get another breakout right next to it and just then feel cursed by God. And it's like, no, you felt attacked. You felt soiled. You felt dirty because of the breakout, which perpetuates the breakout. I had the, I got to talk with like a 18 year old girl the other day and explain this to her, which I was just so excited because to understand that connection rather than to feel like I'm just curse because I have the acne gene. Um, there's, there's something I can do about this. There's a way that I can change how I'm thinking and how I'm responding to my tissue adaptations that will diminish my tissue adaptations and make it so that I don't have this reaction and this response to the stuff that's happening to me. Um, so that's the big picture is that the body's doing something on purpose. It starts in the psyche, something happens to you, you have a shock, and then your biology adapts appropriately for whatever it is that you were dealing with. Um, and that by resolving these conflicts in a swifter period of time, by paying attention to the things you're conflicted about, will help you to understand all of the health symptoms you've ever had your entire life. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> it's so funny because just before we jumped on with you, Melissa, um, Chloe and I were talking about Blue Zones because I've been watching a docuseries, I think it's on Netflix, about Blue Zones. Um, and talking about like their diet and like, you know, what everyone is pushing for diet now is like more carnivore, like nourishment, that kind of thing. But then you look at these blue zones and their diets are not that at all. It's very seasonal, lots of veggies, lots of legumes and pulses. And, um, and yet they've got these massive populations of, and I'm only a few episodes in, so that might not be for all the blue zones, but, um, yeah, they've got these really high populations of centenarians and, um, and I was, you know, thinking in terms of GNM, these people are not stressed. They are so like in love and involved with their communities. They're moving their bodies constantly. They're working with the land. They're working with animals. Like there's nothing that is like ongoing stress, like what we have living in environments like cities and even big towns where you're put under crazy lights and you've got all these different stresses constantly at your body and then internal stresses of what am I doing? Where am I going? What are we eating? <laughs> like, That's interesting because yeah. like the blue zone doco or the blue zone whole theory is I know a lot of it's to get people onto like plant-based and, you and know, it's very Mediterranean like diets, climate changey, <laughs> that type of agenda. That's how I feel about it anyway, which I'm <laughs> quite resistful towards. But um, it's like they completely miss the mark because they're looking at diet and things like that, right? Yeah. But really. This documentary um, series does seem to paint a 
broad stroke around not just the diet but also the lifestyle factors, the community factors, like lots of aspects. But if you want to just make it really simple, you can look at these people don't have stress <laughs> and they don't have conflict. these conflicts. And, you know, they're probably a little bit more resilient too. So if they do have a conflict, it just it's water off a duck's back. They don't hold on to it. It's not like a internalised thing, which, I mean, we've spoken to um, Dr Morgan about that, trying to make our children a bit more resilient so they don't internalise like really small things that can happen mm. in any day-to-day scenario so yeah yeah it's it's pulling some things in for something me. i did want to talk about was um because we each have four children and i have a there's a one of my children has an ongoing conflict that i cannot like i just cannot get to the bottom of it um and it's a really classic childhood ailment she has like chronic inflamed tonsils and now mouth breathes and snores at night and I've spent like, so this started happening when she was around two and now she's seven and a half. And I've just spent like this entire time figure, trying to figure out what it is. I'm like, are you, is it like, is it simple? Is it complex? And obviously modern Western medicine is all like, get them tonsils cut out, get the adenoids removed. It's very much like pluck it, you'll be right. And I do not mm. subscribe to that way of handling with illness. Um, so when we're, when we're talking about children, how do we facilitate the conflicts being resolved? Because it's so hard. We don't know what they're feeling or thinking or we don't know what was big. Like, you know, taking away a, a bag of popcorn may have been life-shattering for them at the age of two. Is that what the conflict mm-hmm. – do you know what I mean? How do we um, facilitate the resolution of conflict for our kids? Totally. It's all about curiosity and experimentation and, and patience, you know, and trying a lot of different things because it is, it's like, you have to try to see the world through their eyes, <laughs> you know, like what was taken from me. So this morsel, that's the, the tonsils. It's a morsel, something that I want or something I want to spit out, you know, so the classic, I want to eat the cookies. I want to spit out the broccoli. I really desperately don't want this thing, or I really desperately do want this morsel, you know, and so the tonsils will grow in order to better insalivate so that we have more salivary juices to better break down the thing that we're wanting or to better slide and spit out the thing that we don't want. And so it is, it's, it's paying attention to those subtle things that, that cause her to respond with a, Oh, I really want that. Or, Oh, I feel like that's being taken away from me. You know, what's the morsel for her? What's the important thing? What is the, you know, the thing that I want? That's like when you're trying to decode, what the heck is a morsel? (laughs) You know, so often it is, it's the actual food morsel. So I want to eat, I want the breast. I don't want the bottle. You know, that's kind of a classic thing that will cause tonsil adaptation Um, or, you know, there's a, you know, like the child that wants the cookies and really just doesn't want to eat, you know, whatever is being given. It's like, I want this and I won't stand for anything else. And, um, you know, so one trying to figure out what's the morsel about, uh, what does she get upset about? What's taken from her? If there's other siblings often that that's, you know, one of the roots of it is like, I want what they have. And I'm, you know, I'm, fighting for the thing that I think is mine or the last piece of whatever. Um, So you do, you just have to pay attention, take notes. Like this is a big thing, I think for everyone, every individual, but especially for parents is to note things, you know, 
a little journal of like when the stuffy nose happened, when the sore throat, when did the diary, so that you have something to look back to because now it's running on a track. So the first time it was a conflict where it was like unexpected and caught her on the wrong foot and she was unprepared for it and caused the adaptation to begin. Um, but after that, so once the original conflict occurs, you know, things get tracked. And so that means that, you know, her body took a snapshot of everything that was going on, the season, the, you know, the decorations, what it smelled like, who was there, all these little subtle cues can get flagged by the nervous system. And then the next time she encounters it, it's like she didn't even have a shock. Nothing crazy happened. But, you know, these tonsils are swollen again. She's going back through that adaptation. Um, and so it's what, what was similar? You know, and so it's detective work. It's just paying attention and, and figuring out what is it that she wants? What has she been complaining about? You know, what does she talk about? What's on her mind? Um, and, you know, you will find clues. There's all, and just, that's your only goal. My goal is to find clues. I don't need, I, I can't, you know, wave a web, magic wand and fix this, um, but I can learn more about my child her experience of the world, what makes her tick. And I can, you know, do my best to facilitate one, helping her get the thing that she wants. But also, like you mentioned before, having more resilience when one doesn't get what one wants, because that is a fact of life that we do need to teach to our children that there are times, you know, where you want something and you don't get it, you know, and if you resist that, if you are mad and you stamp your feet and you get angry, um, the only one that suffers is you. And helping, you know, a seven-year-old to grasp that kind of big picture concept, you know, is difficult, but it's also a life lesson. You know, it's also something that's going to serve her her entire life to understand how to be non-resistant in moments where she really wants something. And it seems like the fastest path to getting it is to tantrum or to get really upset. Um, but what if there's another way and kind of teaching your kids that other way? Um, and again, there's no perfect like this is this is the map for exactly how you do it. You know, you learn from other parents what has worked for other kids. You know, there's a great series of lectures that I recommend from um, the GHK-Academy.com where this um, Dr. Hammer's approved lecturer, Helmut Pilhar, where he just gives tons of stories of like, this is what happened for one parent and this is mm -hmm. what happened here. And so the more that you hear other people kind of helping their kids resolve conflicts, the more you resolve your own conflicts and say, oh, this is, I was out, I went to a concert last week with a friend and, uh, you know, my skirt, a, pop, a button popped off of it uh, while we were walking downtown. And I was like, oh, I really want to find this button. And so we walked back to the car a mile in the heat and then couldn't find the button. And we walked, you know, back another mile. And then I looked out and I found it. And I was like, I found my button. And right after that, I sneezed. You know, and it's like, oh, you know, a little story, a little anecdote like that is it stunk that I lost my button and it stunk. We had to walk a mile in the heat. But when I resolved it and I found, you know, the button, it's like, oh, that's this is how, how my body functions. And so, you know, showing your kids things like that so they can start to make those connections themselves, I think is really cool, too. You know, there are parents that, you know, their kids are like, oh, I got, you know, mad on the playground today um, because I got pushed over. And now my tummy hurts because I had an indigestible anger conflict or a stink conflict or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes to how do we figure this out, you know, you always want to go back to when did it first begin? You know, can we pinpoint who was around, what was around, what was the food, what was the situation, you know, because those are now the tracks. And then, you know, you try to resolve the original conflict and the conflict is resolved when it can't happen again. You know, and so what does that mean? That means, you know, this is why a lot of kids will grow out of things when they realize, oh, 
I'm not completely dependent on my parent for everything. I can go to the cupboard and get my own snack. You know, so I, I'm, I'm a little more free now. I don't have that same conflict. Or when kids leave their parents' house and they grow out of like asthma or allergies or some type of symptom they had in their parents' house, they're like, oh, I can't be grounded again. I can't, that thing can't happen to me anymore because I'm older now. You know, so that's why kids grow out of things. But, you know, for adults where it's like, ooh, how, you know, this could happen again. That's where, you know, if a situation could still happen again, the tracks are going to remain present. So you have to, you know, avoid them. And this is why people who avoid certain foods that they're intolerant to, that's a good strategy. If you can't resolve the conflict, you just avoid the substance that causes you to reactivate the symptoms. That is a decent strategy, you know, or you can really get into it and figure out how can I unravel it? So I, even if the situation could happen again, in theory, how could I experience it like a different person? How could I experience it in a non-resistant way and not create this conflict around it? And that's also possible. The thing that I was just thinking about is where does nutrition play a role? So I'll just keep on going back to my case with my daughter because, you know, I've spent the last five and a half years being told that, oh yeah, it's dairy. You can't eat dairy. Oh yeah, it's gluten. It's grains. It's wheat. It's sugar. It's freaking everything you can't give her that anymore and I'm like okay what about like raw dairy what about sourdough like come on like she's got to eat something she can't be deprived and like our whole family loves eating raw raw milk and like loves sourdough and loves like you know just the joy in eating certain foods and I was like maybe this is like because I'm you know like I've always been pretty strict with what they can and can't eat and I'm like have I created these morsel conflicts because I'm like, you can't eat that all the time. And I'm trying to resolve a problem by being like, you can't eat that. The, the dentist said you can't eat it. The doctor said you can't eat it. Or like, I believe that the morsel conflict is probably that I was pregnant when she was like one and a half and then stopped breastfeeding her to breastfeed my other baby. And we were tandem feeding for a hot minute. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. You've got to go. She's on. And so I think that's probably what it is. And she like still is like, can I have some booby? I'm like, babe, you're seven. <laughs> Get out of here. But I feel like that's probably it, but I don't know how to resolve it because I haven't quite got there yet. But my question mm. is like, where does nutrition play a role in some of these problems that we're so often told you've got to cut out this, you've got to cut out that because that's what's causing it. It's just the, the what you're eating a hundred percent. Yeah. And we know it's not that because often people were fine eating that food for a while. And then all of a sudden it became an issue. It's not the food. It's the fact that the food has become a track. So it's not that like the food inherently has some property in it that causes inflammation of the tonsils. That just doesn't make logical sense because there's other people in the family that are enjoying it and eating it and not having an issue. And so it's, if it is an issue for an individual it is because it has been flagged by the system. And when I, I had the morsel, I didn't get the morsel that I wanted. I wanted the booby. I wanted the breast. And I got the, the cow's milk instead. Morsel conflict. And so it becomes flagged. And so every time I have the, the, the dairy, um, I flare with the symptom simply because the body is remembering the morsel that I wanted that I didn't get. You know, and again, that's why avoiding those foods, if they cause the the symptom to flare up, you know, again, that's a, it's an okay strategy if you're trying to avoid symptoms, but ultimately we do, we want to get to the conflict. So something that could be helpful, and this is um, a recommendation that some teachers have uh, regarding helping kids resolve conflicts is talking to them in their sleep. 
you know, and, and basically explaining to them the nature of the situation, you know, like really just talking to her subconscious mind is like, listen, you know, I was, um, you know, you were one and a half, your baby sister or brother was, you know, was just born and, and needed the milk. And it was really hard for me to feed you both at the same time, you know, just like share your struggles, share the difficulty of like why it was hard. Cause she's, you know, she's a girl, she's, she's going to have babies someday, hopefully. And that she will, might find herself in a similar situation of having two little ones, you know, uh, trying to feed and like, like just share your struggle, share the difficulty, share why you made the decision that you made um, and kind of help her to, you know, see it. And, and again, not, not that she's going to get it on a conscious level, but just kind of speaking to her subconscious mind. If you think that that's the reason that this morsel conflict is persisting and that she's even seeking the booby to this day is <laughs> because there's a part of her psyche that's like, but I didn't finish, but I wasn't ready. And it's like saying, I know you might not have been ready. And I'm sorry that if you weren't ready and if that, you know, created a conflict for you, you know, and basically just kind of sharing with her your, your lived experience, helping her to see something and helping you both to grow and evolve through it. There have been parents that have done this uh, kind of thing with their kids and have seen major changes in like cavities, bite conflicts, um, I've had several mothers ask me like, oh, what about teeth issues? Which is, you know, I feed my kids perfect. They never have refined sugar. They only eat good. Why are there, why is their enamel decaying? Why do they have cavities? Um, and it's like, well, who did you want to bite when you were pregnant with them when they were little? Like if, you know, if the child, they're like, the child's never separated from me. I don't know what the conflict is. What's going on with you? You know, and so that's another thing for parents to look at is like, what are my unresolved conflicts? What conflicts that I have um, pre-gestation, during gestation, after gestation that this, you know, that the, this child that they picked up on as their own because they don't, you know, babies are one with the mother. They don't see themselves as a separate entity for, you know, some time into their experience. And so they, they, children do pick up on whatever it is you're dealing with. And so by sharing that with them, by speaking to their subconscious mind while they're sleeping and saying, Hey, this was mine. This isn't yours or sharing with them the experience that you think may have led to them having a conflict and just helping them to see that, you know, it's not yours. You don't have to carry it. You know, I hope you understand, you know, the whole, I, I love you. Thank you for give me, you know, a process with, um, with them can be extremely helpful. And again, it's just something you experiment with, um, and, and trying to unburden their psyche from whatever might be conflicting. Mm, that's so interesting. And so when does all this begin? Like you just said, mentioned gestation. So do conflicts start, um, kind of occurring before the baby's born and then during birth? Yes. And even there is, um, there's a doctor who worked, he, he learned from Dr. Hammer, um, but he, um, his name was Dr. Claude Saba and he saw, he was like a medical doctor, but like an old school one who'd like go into people's homes and, you know, see them. And he started, so he started learning biological laws, but he also saw these families over generations, you know, so he'd see a child and the child would have a certain symptom or whatever, but he also knew the parents when the parents were kids, like before they even got together. And he says that even in the nine months prior to conception, like the dynamic and what was going on with the parents, what happened at the moment of conception, and then during the nine months of gestation, the birth process, and like that first, all of that plays a role in kind of that child's story, even like what the child is named. Um, like all of these things have uh, symbolic re um, relevance in how that child's life plays out and what they go through, you know, so every stage is 
really relevant and important for what, you know, what did this child go through? What did they hear? You know, I had an experience recently where I was just very attuned to like the, the things that you hear, like in your parents' house, like the thing, like the voices down the hall and almost like when you're, you know, in the womb that you're hearing voices down the hall, you can sense what's going on with the people that are around you. You know, you can sense the tension and the fears and the worries of your mother, of the, the conversation in the room. And so, uh, it may go back mm. then. So yeah, we can have adaptations that the body gets that message of <gasps> danger. And this is why, you know, things like ultrasound and baby, you know, moms having very frequent uh, medical testing during their pregnancy. And then obviously during the birth and fetal monitoring and, oh no, is baby okay? And, oh no, uh, is there enough fluid? Is she, is this okay? You know, all of those things are like the baby is listening, the baby is sensing and feeling. And don't you know that that body is going to be adapting as appropriate for whatever that situation is. And so that's why, you know, even things like loud noises, we just take for granted that we live in this modern noisy world with jackhammers and, you know, chainsaws and, you know, just noises going on around us. But we have to think about the fact that Hundreds of years ago, like the only reason you'd ever hear a big, terrifying sound like that is actually a threat, a predator coming to get your mother. And so um, hearing those noises, again, we're accustomed to it, but the baby in the womb is not. And Dr. Hammer found that a double hearing conflict, like when you are like bombarded with a lot of really, really loud noises, um, that that can create a, a hearing constellation which um, he has correlated to trisomy 21. And so Down syndrome being actually a, a double hearing conflict that changes the expression and that it's not, you know, we think it's genes cause illness. So it's the genes that are the problem, but rather it's the environment. It's the psyche of the organism that is, you know, reacting to a conflicting situation. And it's that that changes the gene rather than the gene being the thing, you know, we know this from epigenetics, that it's the environment. It's not simply the gene itself. It's what causes that gene to turn on or to express itself in the way that it does. And now we know it's the conflict. And so if we have a certain conflict, literally the genes change, that the, the genes change their expression because of the adaptation. And so that's why we need to, you know, with this knowledge, we live differently. We're more mindful of like being around, you know, loud blaring noises and jackhammers while pregnant or having ultrasounds even, you know, and the, the ultrasound kind of bombarding the, the baby. And they say, oh, you know, mothers who are older have a greater likelihood of, you know, Down syndrome. But it's like they also, because of the system, say, oh, geriatric pregnancy, we need to monitor you and have an ultrasound a week or something like that. And so that those babies are bombarded with much more sound um, than one that, you know, is considered low risk or whatever. Mm. And so um, that, <laughs> yes, it's I have a question. Early. What yeah. if the loud noises are your children? I was What if you're pregnant and you have like six kids, they're all screaming all the time. <laughs> you're screaming as you're well. Scream- <laughs> well, those are the natural sitting. sounds. So <laughs> natural, okay, cool. Think, uh, you know, think about the jungle. Organic. It's lots organic. Lots of noises, a lot of organic jungle sounds. I actually oh, wanted yeah. to, I like you, you've touched on something really fascinating for me because this is also one of my experiences, but I'm also really curious is 
and it's kind of in line with as parents who are like, you know, onto nutrition, onto the environment, like onto all this stuff. And we're like, we did everything right. How is our kid's tooth cr- like so severely decayed? And I feel like we can relate to that in pregnancy too. Like we did everything right. We wild pregnancy, no scans, no hospital, no nothing like unassisted. But and I mean, like for me, I'll just use my experience because it's much easier, but I had, you know, like more or less that experience. And then my baby was born and he couldn't breathe properly. And then I ended up in hospital with him and I was like, well, that's shit because that is not what I planned. And I did, I felt like I did everything right. Why did that happen to me? And why did, why was that my story? And so, yeah, it is a fascination of how, how we have those scenarios play out and are they conflicts like what kind of conflict like how do you get there is what I'm trying to say in terms of with a GNM lens well I mean that would be we'd have to look like what you know so yes you can do again all the external things and not do this mm-hmm. and not do that and you know think that I've, I've checked all the boxes and I'm not at all as well but if there was a conflict you know a conflict in you know, having to do with anything, a conflict prior to the birth, a conflict around money. We look at all the conflicts, you know, that were the potentials for, you know, what you experience, what the baby experience, you know, and uh, there are things that, um, you know, familial, so like generational things, like is this, you know, did um, an ancestor or someone in my family line have a baby that had difficulty breathing? Is there something, you know, generational to address here that I'm not conscious of, you know, that this is here to, you know, things come up in cycles for somebody to heal it. Things come up in order for, you know, someone in the family line to recognize it, to realize it and to resolve it. So that's, you know, this is kind of separate from GNM, you know, so Dr. Hammer, he didn't get into the generational stuff. He really just stayed to the timeline of the individual organism simply because that's what he could prove um, with the biological laws because things like transgenerational um, connections, you can't really put a science to that. And so that's more, you know, speculative. And so even if Dr. Palmer did, you know, believe in things like that, he didn't put it in his system. And so some of the things that I'm describing here aren't like strict, um, Dr. Hammer GNM. It's more like other um, people who have used the biological laws see certain themes and see certain connections that if a baby is born with a certain condition and it seemed like everything was fine, there's always a reason. Like look at the third, you know, sons in both of your, you and your uh, spouse's family line. Like there, there's often some type of connection. And so that's what I would get curious about is like, hmm, you know, what, what does this reveal potentially about a conflict of an ancestor, something that's been unresolved in the family line? You know, obviously first look at what happened with you. What were your fears? What were unresolved conflicts that you've experienced, you know, um, that may have been suppressed that you weren't fully conscious of? What did you learn through the experience? So after it happened and the transfer and all of that, you know, like that every situation can be gleaned for greater wisdom. And so I wouldn't ever look at it. And that's where the power of your perception how do I want to look at this? Do I want to look at this as like, oh, there's no point in doing all the perfect things because you could do everything perfect and get transferred anyways? Well, how do I want to see this? What's the story that I want to put? Uh, what label do I want to put on this experience that I had? Is like, you know, there, I'm sure there's things that you learned through it as a result of it um, that you can use to your benefit. And so that's my game is I'm always like, mm-hmm. how can I use this to my benefit? What's great about this? How can I learn from this? Um, because otherwise it becomes a, 
oh, well, you know, you know, this bad things just happen. And sometimes mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. And there's like a helplessness there. Yeah. So I like to take a more, you know, like energetic, empowered approach to, all right, something crappy happened, <laughs> something like not wonderful, or right, what the experience was really intense or scary. Um, and I reflect on it as like, yeah, that sucks that that happened. But I get to choose what it means. Do you see Melissa in, um, in JNM when the conflict is like a bigger trauma versus something small, like a, a mortal conflict, you want something, you can't have it, um, versus like going through a loved one having cancer. Um, I'll just take my own example there. <laughs> Do you see those conflicts like – do they have different like levels of effect on the body or, and like, is it like the greater the trauma, the greater the effect, or is it like, can something really small have the same effect as something that's like a huge traumatic situation? Yes. It's always going to depend on the individual and how they experience it. So everybody, you know, so even something like loss, um, you know, that you may lose someone and they, you know, but if it was expected, if you're like, I knew that they were at this age and that this could happen and that, yes, it's like the grief and the sadness is still there, but it wasn't, you know, an unexpected shock. It was like, you know, it was, I did, I did anticipate it. And although it's heavy and although it's really difficult to deal with, um, you know, I, that may not result in any adaptation. So there really is that shock component of like, I wasn't prepared for experience. So let's say even you did like know that the person was going to die, but you didn't anticipate how, how much it would impact you, you know, then that, yeah, that could totally be a conflict. And yes, that there is degrees of intensity, you know, for how um, intense you perceive the situation to be. So something like a big loss or a big betrayal, um, you know, but everybody is unique in how they experience. Like if so, if your partner betrays you, but you were like planning on leaving anyways, and you're like, oh, this is convenient, <laughs> you know, like that's, <laughs> That's like, that's a, you know, no conflict situation or versus if you, you know, have devoted your whole entire life to this person and you thought that they only had eyes for you and you had never even considered ever possibly being with anyone else ever, like that conflict's going to hit you a lot more, you know, versus if you, you know, if you're completely financially dependent on that person, um, or if you have your own job, you're like, oh, that was really difficult, but at least I'm going to be okay versus someone who, you know, was very financially dependent. So like the intricacies of how a conflict like hits a person really depends on their state, their identity, their entanglement, their, you know, spiritual beliefs, like, you know, death is really hard on, on certain people and, you know, a little softer on certain people that have different spiritual beliefs and like what you believe about, you know, God and reality and afterlife and, you know, reincarnate, whatever, like all of those things really do matter. Um, and so, yeah, the, the deeper it hits you, the longer the conflict is active, you know, most like the little things like, oh, I wanted that and I can't have it um, just in a moment. It's like, you know, one and done. It's like, I have it. I have a little symptom. It goes away. Oh, I lost my button. I sneeze. You know, that's not going to turn into like a huge, huge nasal polyp. It's just like what's happening either persistently. So you're constantly being reminded of it, or you're like not in a state of resolution at all. Like it's like a conflict and I don't know what to do about it. And, um, you know, there was a woman who developed, you know, colon cancer and she, because she dealt with something like her, you know, someone, the police came to the door and said, Oh, you know, your husband needs to go to jail because we found some things on his computer that were very disturbing. And so it's like, <gasps> 
Like, how do you, like, that's something that's going to, you know, that's a deep, dark, ugly, indigestible something that's like, it took a long time. And this person then, you know, developed colon cancer. And it's like, well, that makes sense because how do you even process that? You know, not getting a cookie for five seconds versus, you know, something that's like deep and, you know, so entangled in your whole entire life. And like, you know, just the like the idea, everything about it was like indigestible. And so that makes sense that something like that would develop into a colon cancer, you know, rather than the cookie is like a brief thing that wouldn't, you know, result in, in colon cancer. Mm. So let's say I'll just use a typical one that we probably get into. Like, let's say we get diagnosed with a skin cancer because everybody knows in Australia, this is the story that if you go in the sun, you get skin cancer. Like it's hundred percent happening. So if you get skin cancer, obviously there's a conflict, but what from a, with the GNM lens, what would you do when something like that arises? Or let's just even say you're the person with colon cancer after you have this huge indigestible morsel then what? Because if you look to, you know, Western medicine, they're like, that's the most deadly cancer, colon cancer. You've basically got no chance of surviving this. So what would a person who's deeply embedded and trusting in GNM do when they've been given that? Well, so that's the question is like, one, would you ever go in for a diagnosis? Because there is something just like, you know, scary inherently about going in and having an authority in a white coat tell you and kind of pronounce upon you a scary diagnosis. And so most of the people that I know, because this is, you know, this is something that you learn and you, like you said, you deeply integrate it into your understanding of reality. And so basically you would, if you started um, having bloody stools and, and, you know, night sweats, you'd say, Oh, I resolved my indigestible situation. Like, okay, so that's what, that's what I'm dealing with right now is the breakdown of my body processing this um, indigestible anger that I, you know, I didn't get over it for about four months. I know I was losing sleep. I was up. You, you'd know is what I mean is like, so basically you'd know the, the content of the situation. You'd know that you were losing sleep about it. You'd know that you were conflicted about it. And that when you finally released it, processed it, worked through it, you know, did something, something happened where you were like, okay, I'm over that. I'm, I've resolved it. I've changed my attitude or I've changed the situation. And now that's resolved. You'd be aware of that shift. And then you'd say, Ooh, um, here come the symptoms. The, the night sweats are indication of healing. The blood in the stool, that's an indication of he healing. And so you probably never go in to the system where they would pronounce, you know, something deadly upon you. Now, the thing is, is most people have a foot in both worlds. Most people have come across GNM in the last couple months or last few years, and they're trying to like really wrap their head around it. But if they, you know, a melanoma pops up or if they, you know, have some, you know, squamous something on their skin. So a skin cancer, like you gave that example, it's like they would have to assess, you know, what, because we're, we're working with these different paradigms that are kind of warring within one says, oh, melanoma, feeling attacked, feeling soiled conflict. You felt attacked by this situation. This makes sense that this is here, you know, versus the voice in your head that says, this is bad and scary. It could spread to all of your organs and it could kill you. Which voice is louder? You know what I mean? So a person has to check inside which voice is louder. The, the voice that says this is a logical, understandable biological adaptation based on this specific situation that I was dealing with. This makes perfect sense. I know that once this conflict is resolved, if I don't reactivate it, the body will take care of it. It knows exactly what to do. 
am I, am I at peace with that? Or is there a gnawing, oh, that's irresponsible. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's scary. Oh, this is a, you know, what, what would your mother think? What would this person think? What would your doctor say? It's like, you have to know which voice is louder. What's going to bring you the most peace? Because for some people, Going into the medical doctor, having the, the having a surgery, having it removed, even if you believe in GNM and you understand and it makes sense to you, um, that might be the path of least resistance for you. That might be the path that makes the most sense to you, you know, uh, and that's what you have to know for yourself. And so I, that's what I recommend to people is like, you have to know yourself. You have to know what's going to bring you the most peace. You have to know why you're making the decisions you're making. Because some people, even if that voice is louder, the voice of fear, they kind of like maybe are socially committed to the idea of being, you know, holistic. And they're like, oh, I don't want to be seen as doing a, a medical thing because I'm a crunchy, holistic person, even though inside they are more afraid of the diagnosis or of the symptom that they're experiencing. And so they're kind of, you know, putting on a brave face, but deep down, you know, they might be better off having a surgery again, simply because most of what they believe is is in the fear realm and so it's highly individual there's there's no there's no like this is how it's done it's what do you inside your soul believe is going on with this tissue adaptation um and where are you at with it and what's going to bring you the greatest peace because sometimes you know you know people you can find a way to make it work you can find a way to figure out and navigate your way to the best resolution given the whole dynamic and matrix of beliefs that you're currently you know tied up in mm, that is really really interesting because i mean and makes uh makes so much sense because um and look, and also I think that's really difficult because so many of us, and I do this to myself all the time, we gaslight ourselves and it's, and that is like, and, but that's like from babies we're told, no, you're okay. And then, you know, you double th think and question everything you're thinking and feeling and like, oh, is that really true? And I've had th this experience just recently where I'm like, oh, is it? Or maybe it's not. Or I, like, I don't know really how I'm feeling. And I've got like all these signs and symptoms that are like <laughs> screaming at me <laughs> that I've got a particular thing. And I'm like, oh, no, like maybe it's something else. Just and put that over there. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it's such like – so, you know, it really requires us to, you know, go deep with you know, what what do we feel? What is reality? Like what is right there Tapping. in front of us? Yeah. And I mean, that also means not listening to, listening to your friends and they also try and gaslight you. <laughs> but but it, it, it's such a societal thing as well that we will like, you know, Mm. just shut off those voices which are telling us exactly what we need to hear. So, no, it's very interesting. Um, one thing I do feel stumped on is what if you just don't find your conflict or you have this thing that's been going on for a long time or, it's like, <laughs> or it's like a turn into like a constellation, which I understand is like several different things at the same time or from each side of the coin. And so if you're constantly just on this journey of finding the conflict or trying to resolve it, but you just can't get there, is there any other way, like, is it as simple as just changing your perspective on, or just changing your lifestyle or becoming more mindful of things in general from like today onwards, or can, 
Is there a way to go back or are you just on a mission for the rest of your life trying to pinpoint something that happened to you when you were two or, you know, something, you know, I've heard stories where, and I know, you know, Freya Callet, her, she shared a story of her husband who had a constant, um, like an eczema rash behind his ear and he went all the way back to when he was a child and it was because his mum like always used to pull his t-shirt and it got stuck over his ears and then he realised that. But how do you, if you can't get there, how can you move on from the conflict or resolve the conflict and stop having the symptoms? Yep. And so we're looking, you know, you stay aware and and put the connections together and like always be curious. It's like, okay, there's got to be a reason. Why here? Why here? You know, and, and that if it doesn't come to you right away, just know there is a link here, even if I can't see it. And so my job is just to kind of stay in a place of awareness and curiosity, you know, and, and stay out of frustration of, oh, no, I haven't, you know, figured it out yet. And what's wrong with me? And am I going to be looking for this forever? It's like, it is what it is. It's there. If the symptom is there in that location, there's a reason it's there in that location. And it's rooted in something that happened, some type of conflict shock that got, you know, imprinted into your nervous system and it's expressing in this way. And so big picture, I want to resolve this. I want to find, I want to have the aha moment, the awareness that allows me to, uh, to close this loop, to end this track. Um, in the meantime though, and so that's the thing, it's like, that's my goal, big picture. Um, in the meantime though, I want to pay attention to, you know, like how do I react to things? What are the subtle little, cause every, every track, every reaction, when something flares up, it's a little bit of a clue. You know, so like if a person is dealing with like scalp psoriasis and their head is itching, it's like, what is on your mind when you itch your head or when you like scratch behind your ear or when, you know, you get that, that pain or that discomfort. It's like, what was on my mind right in that moment? And that's where, you know, the core of the work that I teach is around awareness. Am I paying attention to those split second thoughts, to the word, to what's going through my head in a moment when something flares up? You know, because there's information there. There's a clue that if I can put those pieces together, but you also don't need to stress about it and freak out and be like, oh, if I don't catch the thought, then I'm not going to figure this. It's like that's an unresourceful attitude to have towards this work. You know, so this is a, this, this map is helping us to understand our biology. This map is giving us clues as to why we have the symptoms that we have. So our job is to be, you know, aware, to pay attention, you know, to ask for a dream, ask the subconscious mind, show me something I haven't seen before, you know, unresolved conflicts will come up in dreams, you know, um, and just being, I find that it is like tuning in to yourself, tuning into infinite intelligence, because there's always answers available to you. Um, but often we're like, you know, uh, an example of this is like, if you're constantly picking up the phone, what's my conflict? What's my conflict? What's my conflict? It's like, you're asking, asking, hang the phone up. You know, how much time are you spending in meditation? Just kind of op open, ready to receive an insight, you know? And so I'd say prioritize that inner silence you know, you've asked for it, you've put these connections together, now you're just looking, you know, spend more time in inner silence, like looking, you know, receiving um, answers to the questions that you're asking. Um, so I play with that. And again, just staying open, journaling about things, um, paying attention to the clues of what's showing up for me today. So yes, if I am having trouble pinpointing, and that's the thing about like a lot of separation conflicts that do go back to being two years old, is there's memory loss associated with it. Like there's a reason that you can't remember certain things because the psyche says, let's not remember that. It's, it's more, it's less painful to forget it. So we'll forget it. And so trust that, you know, I'm seeing what I need to see. 
I'm on the right path. I'm figuring things out. I'm, I'm, you know, getting to know myself in the meantime, there's meaning, there's something for me to discover through this process. And so that's just like my general attitude towards this work to unresolved things or chronic things that you haven't quite figured out yet. It's like, there's still something for me to learn here. That's, that's always what I assume. If there's a symptom that's persisting, there's something still for me to learn about myself, about, you know, the dynamics of my relationships or something in my life I need to change. Cause that's the thing too, is some Sometimes people will move somewhere or like leave a situation. All of a sudden their symptoms gone and they're like, whoa, I didn't realize that, you know, I couldn't see it. It was right in front of my face. It was everywhere. And until I got out of the situation, um, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't see it. You know, there's people that there's a great story of a guy who knew GNM for years. He's like, you know, studied GNM, like all like knew all about the, he had dandruff and he could not figure out his dandruff conflict. He's like, it's a separation conflict, you know, from the head. And I really, I just don't know what it is until, you know, one day he realized he's like, Oh, I haven't had dandruff in like months. Like, and he, you know what I mean? Like you have it all the time and you don't even realize you don't have it until it's gone. And one day you're like, Oh, and he made the connection. And then he's like, what was it? And looking back, it was a class reunion that he went to um, where he saw this woman that he uh, had a huge crush on in high school and he professed his love to her and she rejected him publicly. And, you know, but the thing about this woman, she had like long blonde curly hair and he just like was infatuated with her. And so that was his track. That was his separation conflict. Was this, like, is what, the, this is what's like, crazy. It's like these stories. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, that's what it is. It causes you like this lifelong misery. <laughs> I've, I've actually got right? a, <laughs> a really interesting one. Oh, um, which I'll run through really quickly. But last year, I um, I broke out in like head to toe psoriasis. Like my whole body was covered, and I panicked <laughs> because it started off quite small. And I'd had it as a kid before once as well. And um, because I knew like it, it goes away, I wasn't too too stressed. But as I saw it coming out of my skin, it like. I started off with like just little pit and pricks all over my legs and then up under my arms and the, like then these um, plaques just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it, my whole body was pretty much covered all but my face which I was very very <laughs> very very thankful for um, but after about four months like I because when that happened Chloe was in Canada and I'm sending her photos like, oh my God, I don't like what is going on with me right now. And that's when she first introduced me to GM. And I was reading um, about the conflicts and I'm like, I just can't pick, I can't pick what it, what the thing is that's caused this. Like, <clears throat> yes, I'd had a lot of stress. I mean, I was six months postpartum with my fourth and my husband works away a lot. So, it, you know, we had a lot of different things going on. I'm like, okay, I'm stressed and run down. Like, you know, with four kids by myself a lot. So that makes sense. But I couldn't actually pick the conflict. And after four months, it did clear up. But I'm like, oh, I still, I'm like, what, what was, was it? That? So I can never do that again. <laughs> oh, so you didn't, you didn't, you haven't put the connection together yet? <laughs> I never figured it out. But it went away. I'm like, maybe I was maybe it's because I wasn't really stressed about it because I've experienced psoriasis before as a little kid and it went away. So mm-hmm. um, is it a separation yeah. conflict? Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a separation conflict. Really? Mm-hmm. Now I need to try and pinpoint. I told you it was. was. You didn't listen to me. No, now. I didn't. I could read it and I'd be like, I just can't. Well, that's the thing. It's so hard this. to 
because you think big, you're like, oh, I haven't, I'm not away from somebody I wish I was, but it could be something. It's because you were away. (laughs) (laughs) It could be something so small, like, and you don't really think about those things because they're just, yeah, they seem irrelevant, but really the smallest thing could be. Yeah. And the fact that you had it when you were a child, that's very relevant. I would say that like, you know, if you had it then that it's, it's probably a track from, from back then. And again, what is it about the environment, the situation, the time of year, you know, like, and that's, it is, it's tricky. And no one's saying that it's easy. And it's always like, Oh, just, Oh, you just put the connections together and then the symptom goes away. And I get that. It's like easy to simplify. And, and, and that sometimes it is that way. Sometimes it truly is, is like, oh, you see something, the symptom goes away. It's the coolest thing ever. Um, you know, but sometimes it is, it's, you know, you can't figure it out. You don't know what it was. You're not sure why it's connected. Um, you know, the default though, is that it, this somehow makes sense, even if I can't see it. Um, and I would like to know what it is. And again, it, it's your subconscious mind knows. There's a part of the universe that knows exactly why it happened, exactly when it did. Um, and so staying curious and, you know, you might have an insight like this guy did about the dandruff and being like, oh, you know, like that, that really makes sense that this was a separation conflict for, you know, like, you know, how old was your mother? You know, what was the age of your mother when you had the psoriasis? What was going on in that dynamic? How was she distracted? What was, you know what I mean? Like, is this some type of familial thing? Is there, you know, because when you... And that's the thing too, is when you read kind of deeper into these layers and the the symbolism and the fourth child and what that meant for like, again, ancestors, things, um, I wasn't originally kind of really interested in the transgenerational stuff, but the more stories I hear, I'm like, hmm, this is, this stuff is really interesting. So there could be something there. Mm. It's interesting. The one thing that I do want to, want to, um, to talk about is if you take a medicine, like be it a herb or anything, or actually let's go antibiotics because that's common. What happens to the healing process? Do you cancel it? Cause I, I mean, I know I want to just talk to those people. I doubt they're even listening, but the people who run to the pharmacy every time they have a symptom um, or run to the doctor every time something comes up and they just, they just down a bunch of drugs. And it seems like it happens. Like these people do this all the time. It seems like they're very unwell all the time. Will the symptom keep reappearing or are you, stopping the healing process or what's happening so like when a bacteria is present in the body you're already in the healing phase so you know when there's inflammation when there's quote infection um the the body's already in the healing phase bacteria are seasonal workers they come to repair tissue to break down tissue that's no longer needed or to build up tissue that has been eroded and so when you take an antibiotic um it all it does is it shifts the brain. So when you're in the healing phase, you're a vagotonic or parasympathetic. Um, when you're in the conflict phase, you're um, a sympathicotonic. So fight or flight versus the rest and digest. And so when you're in healing, when the bacteria are, are active, you're in that rest and digest phase. When you take an antibiotic, it shifts you back into the fight or flight. It goes, you know, it basically chemically turns um, the relaxing healing phase into um, the, uh, the stress phase. And so that's why your symptoms seem to get better, you know, and this is why, you know, if you have a headache or something and you drink some coffee, you know, a headache, we've got, you know, the dilated vessels and then we have the caffeine and it, and it constricts the vessels. And so that makes the headache go away. Same, same sort of principle. So the, the antibiotic basically shuts off the healing phase. 
you know, so most people, they're already well into the healing by the time they take the antibiotics. So they finish the course of antibiotics and it feels like, oh, the antibiotic just kicked it out. It was already in healing. The tissue was already in the repair process. And you basically just decreased the, the tissue repair that was taking place. You know, the body can still... Um, you know, it's still going to finish it. It's not going to be the most complete because the bacteria didn't get to finish their job, but it's not, you know, it, the healing process did still finish, even though you took it. It's just a lot of people do it because they have paranoia, you know, like women with a UTI. Oh, if I don't take the antibiotic, it's going to go to my kidneys, you know? So again, if you believe more in that story, taking the antibiotic, you know, is it the most ideal? No. One of the things that I, I learned recently um, through one of the sem seminars from Helmut Pilhar is that the antibiotic doesn't actually kill the bacteria because your bacteria are just in your body. You get them through, like when you put everything in your mouth when you're a child, it basically like populates your gut with all of the, all the bacteria you're going to need your whole life. And they, even if you take the antibiotic, they turn off but they can turn back on, you know? And so the whole fear of, oh no, I destroyed my gut after I took these. That's also kind of fear-based. A lot of people will think, oh, I made these terrible mistakes by taking these antibiotics in the past and now my gut is forever ruined. No, your, your gut can repopulate, you know? And that's the thing, like the, even the pleomorphism that the body can morph from a bacteria into a fungus. It can, it can create whatever it is that you need because it's intelligent. Like the, the bacteria are intelligent and adapting um, even if you do take antibiotics. So um, when that happens and when it seems to get rid of the symptom, it's because you're sim simply, you know, going back into the conflict active biological state rather than in continuing through the healing phase. Mm. Well, that's actually relieving. And yeah, that, that was really relaxing, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just, um, oh, just, my body's looking after me. I can just like, Even if trust. you've taken antibiotics or you've been put yeah. in a position where you've been coerced to even or you're you've been coerced to give it to your baby or anything mm, mm. that's kind of that's a soothing that's a soothing hug but also breast milk yeah you, know, you um, just populate that <laughs> <laughs> um i'd love to just finish off with asking um what are like the your fundamentals or um kind of like if you had to just put it on a little note and give it to somebody what would be you know coming from the perspective of gnm and all of your studies like the awareness the awareness school um yeah like what would you say to people to reduce conflict and just live a life that's you know low low conflict causing <laughs> that the right way to put it no move into the bush <laughs> <laughs> remove yourself yeah, from really. society <laughs> No, I mean, like in we, we're living in modern modern world, and if there's a way, or if there are, you know, a playbook, what does that look like for reducing conflict and disease? Yeah, and I think for me, and that's where the awareness comes in, is like knowing when I'm in conflict, because you know, most people, like you said, we gaslight ourselves, we don't pay attention to how we're really feeling, we, um, you know, don't realize the impact of the unnatural lives that we're living and that, gosh, you know, I feel a lot better on those days where I just am out, outside all day. It's like, huh, why is that? And then we go back to our normal, regular lives. So it's like, what can I do to facilitate more peace, harmony, you know, doing what makes biological sense? Because most of us are living lives that are against our biology, you know, like, and, and looking at what is my life about? What do I want my life to be about? So it is, it's kind of big picture, like, purpose, meaning, what is life all about questions. Um, but in, in the moment to moment, it's, it's trusting yourself. You know, I've got to learn how to trust myself, 
trust my body because a lot of conflict comes from uh, worry. So that's the potential of what could happen in the future. What might happen? What's going to happen about this? I don't know. I don't know. It's like, well, if you trusted yourself to respond resourcefully, that's kind of one of the things that um, Steve and I teach is about learning to respond resourcefully. And that simply means of doing what makes sense. You know, and if I trust myself that I'm always going to respond resourcefully in any possible situation. So if my mind, because the mind loves drama, the mind, you know, it, it likes to create drama out of nowhere and it gets bored. And that's, I think a lot of the reasons that people have as many conflicts as they do is they're simply bored because they don't have to farm for their food. They don't have to forage for their, you know, berries or go gather their water. Like that's all at the grocery store. So it's like, I've got all this time when, um, of the teachers I study, he talks about time structure and how so many of the dramas and the, you know, the things that we live out and the problems with our in-laws and the problems with our siblings and, and our neighbors is simply because we have so much time to structure and we don't know what we would do with that time if we didn't have conflict. You know, so the conflict as actually look at the conflict in your life and ask, what role is this serving? If this conflict was gone, because, you know, if, if there's some conflict in, the, in your life, there's probably a part of you that secretly loves it, that secretly is happy that it's there. So you have something to talk about. Notice what people talk about when they get together. They talk about conflicts and problems and issues with the government and the neighbor and the this. And the, it's like they don't have anything else to talk about. So if those conflicts were taken away magically, if we got rid of all of your conflicts. You'd be bored to death. And it's like, actually, this conflict is giving me something to talk about, you know, and that's why some people don't want to get rid of their illnesses because it is, it's, it's, it's become their identity, mm-hmm. you know, so actually look at if I got rid of all of the things that I say I want to get rid of, what would be left? <laughs> you know, what would my life consist of? And would that be boring to me? You know, and if that's, if it's true, if you were absolutely honest with yourself and you got rid of all of the conflict in your life that you say you don't want, um, and if you look at that life and you say, you know, honestly, I would be bored to death. And I, we had, I had a client that was that honest where we're trying to work through her panic and her anxiety and all her stuff. And it's like the more tools I give her, the, the more she's like, you know what? I think I'd be really bored if I didn't have this, this chronic anxiety. I, I wouldn't have any, like it, it was, it was radically honest of her to acknowledge that. Stop crafting. Just stop crafting. I don't know if people yeah, have that um, enough honesty or interest in crafting to do something different. And so, yeah. So being honest with yourself, what would I do if I actually didn't have this problem? Trusting yourself to respond resourcefully and just being aware, you know, what's going on with me really? What do I really want? What is my life about? You know, and answering those questions for yourself and then discovering along the way, you know, and giving yourself permission to change things up. A lot of times conflict comes from within. Oh, identity conflicts and self-devaluation. Those are kind of two big ones is because of decisions you've made in the past that you just can't get over. It's like, give yourself permission to reinvent, start over, you know, like it's, it's okay. And, and so there's, there's a lot of tools that we can adopt and practice in order to live lower conflict lives, you know, and, and always seeing that there's a win-win there's a way, you know, we don't have to live in the idea that if I win, they lose, or if I lose, they win. It's a very combative, um, zero sum type of way to live. It's just like, what if there's a win-win? What if there's a way that we can both get what we want out of this? I think that's a great way of negotiating with kids. <laughs> you know, like it's not win-lose, it's win. There's a way that we can we can all live in harmony together. Um, so those are just a few of my ideas of lower conflict living. Mm, that's amazing. Well, we jam-packed a lot into that yeah. conversation and it definitely answered 
a few of my questions about GM and I hope I gave you a good picture because you were like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've, it, I've been struggling to wrap my head around it a bit, but no, it, it did. It helped. Mm. Mm. Well, we will share all of your amazing things that you do in our show notes and share where people can hunt you down and ask you more questions and, um, yeah, work with you if they feel called to. Um, you've got so many amazing free resources on your Instagram and website and everywhere. So um, if people are interested in that, we will link you up. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. Do you have any offerings yeah. that you want to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Um, I have a weekly class. So if you're like interested in discussions or you want to ask questions and kind of get deeper into the biological laws, it meets on Mondays. It might not be good for your time zone because it's at uh, three, four hours earlier than now. So it'd be like 4 a.m. <laughs> it's 11 o'clock Pacific time. Um, but it's a, it's called language of adaptation. And so we talk about how the body adapts. And so it's great kind of just to get in the flow of the conversation if you're really looking to, you know, integrate this into your life. Um, so that's um, one of the offerings. I also do awareness school. So yeah, if you check out my website, you'll see the the things that are available. But the YouTube channel is a great place to start of just like, you know, that's my recommendation to people is if you come across this information, just start learning it. Just like start watching some videos and starting to learn how it works because it's, it is, it's complicated and it's not always necessarily easy to grasp but um if you've come across it you're very lucky <laughs> and it's it's something that you're gonna want to you know learn a little bit about you know just once a week you know try to watch a video and you know uh see how does my how does the body work because you live in this body your whole life and if you don't know you know where you know psoriasis comes from or a, a tummy ache or you know a girl in my class earlier today was sharing like she got a pimple on her back and she knows exactly it was from her husband was massaging her and she like oh she felt pain when he was doing it and she you know had she felt attacked and she had a conflict and it's like oh I know exactly why that's there that's it's just a really cool thing to bring you peace so that you don't have to worry about oh why is my body doing this why is this scary the body doesn't do scary things the body only adapts appropriately to whatever happened to you so I encourage people to learn this map for yourself especially as a parent you know kids <laughs> develop stuff and the more that you can see the connections the more peace you'll have Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Melissa. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast and at www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.